Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley, and in this episode, we're talking about democracy. It seems fitting. We have a federal election just a couple of weeks away. And as I've said before in this show, I started this program in large part out of frustration about our federal government and the ways that they're actively supporting fossil fuel industries and they're delaying making any real or sensible commitments to climate action. So a federal election is a key opportunity to change the guard, to get a different crew in office and see if they won't take stronger action on our behalf. But of course, democracy is complicated and we could spend many episodes talking about the nature of our political system and what power we as individuals really have in that system. We could also spend episodes talking to local candidates and talking to federal politicians. I'm not going to do any of that. Not right now, anyway. I thought I would explore some of these things in a future episode or two. But today I'm going to be chatting with Castlemaine local Bryn Davies and a group he has been a part of called Democracy for Dinner. I thought this was a suitable topic to talk about because we're actually going to unpack some of the fundamentals of what our Australian democracy is about. And it's a very pleasant sounding enterprise, Democracy for Dinner. And it's also an example, this group that he has been a part of, of how we can, in our local regions, get together in a grassroots kind of way and start to take it upon ourselves to understand all of the political system and what, what's really going on with its complexities and difficulties and op- opportunities. Because just like with climate change, it's easy to feel that federal politics is way too big and beyond our control. And it's really important that we don't feel that way and that we actually engage with it. If you live in Castlemaine, I highly recommend that you check out the Meet the Candidates event happening on Wednesday, the 11th of May, it's at the Tap Room and it's been run by the people in Democracy for Dinner. And hopefully, if there's a recording available after the event, I will link it in the episode notes of the podcast. So stay tuned for that. But if you wanted to, you can either go in person to the Tap Room on Wednesday, the 11th, or you can live stream, I believe, last time they live streamed. So hopefully they'll do that again. And of course, before we begin, I want to acknowledge that Bryn and I recorded this episode on Jara Country, the traditional home of the Jajalrung, who have been custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Sovereignty was never ceded. Salt. Grassroots. 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 Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Saltgrass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com. So I'm Bryn. I live in Castlemaine on Jarrah Country. So I'll pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and continuing connection to this land. So thanks for having me on. So who I am and my interest in democracy, how I got to that. I think I've always had an interest in democracy. In fact, there's a bit of a story that when I was 15, my brother didn't want to vote in the federal election. So I walked down and said I was him and and voted. So there's probably some election back in the 90s that 
is fraudulent, at least for one vote because of that. But And I just, you know, found it sort of fascinating from that kind of perspective of, you know, elections. Some people find elections fascinating and exciting, like uh, horse race, sport Spectator contest. Sport. Yeah, yeah. Sort, of, um, sort of thing. And others find it a big yeah. turn off. And I guess for me, as I've grown older, I've kind of realised that the spectator sport is, you know, part of what's really wrong about democracy and, and uh, voting and elections. And, you know, we can talk about polarisation and things that come from that. So in the last sort of five or six years, I've been involved with um, local Casamain group called Democracy for Dinner, which started as an idea to spread the burden of being an informed citizen. It actually takes a bit of work to be well enough informed to vote in a democracy. You know, we need people to be educated, we need people to take an interest for, for the system to work. It's particularly challenging at a local, local level where candidates aren't always as well known. So we, it was a friend of mine, Jody's original idea and Lexi, Jody and I got together and organised a dinner, uh, dinner for democracy, invited about uh, 15 or 20 people who took a different angle on the election and came and, and shared their knowledge across across the group. And so that evolved into a regular monthly-ish meeting where we discuss a different topic related to democracy and events. And we, we run things like Meet the Candidates. That's that sort of thing to, to give people access to what's going on and good understanding to inform them before they vote. Yeah, great. And so when you first had that very first dinner, did you consciously invite people who had different political viewpoints to come along to sort of broaden your everyone's horizons or did you just grab a bunch of people that you thought would be interested and just get this conversation started? Yeah, I don't think we had the luxury of like... Um you know, hundreds of people wanting to come and therefore we could select <laughs> a representative sample like you would on Q&A or something. But we had, we had you know, a pretty good interest. I think, like I said, 15 to 20, it might have been 25 people there in the end. But what we did do is we asked them all to come with three different perspectives on the topic that they had researched. So it was looking at essentially what's the Labor policy, what's the Liberal policy and what's the Greens policy as three perspectives. We have our own opinions and our own kind of viewpoints, but one of the things that we find really important in the conversations we have you know, around the dinner table and that I think relates to democracy generally is keeping an open mind and listening to the best possible viewpoint from the other side. The challenge is being closed-minded to what might be the other side and, and dismissive of it doesn't help any of us and doesn't help democracy. So we brought different perspectives and we sort of debated them and we tried to listen to what was the best possible uh, version of the of the side that we didn't necessarily agree with and in each of the dinners that we've had since I mean the thing I really like about them in addition to their sort of an intentional space where you can talk about stuff as opposed to a dinner party where you might talk for a few seconds and it feels uncomfortable going too far or you get into an argument this is don't like bring one up topic it's <laughs> like that's the rule of a dinner party that's right. don't this bring is up the politics. opposite like you can't talk about anything else <laughs> Well, it's, it's, you know, and it gives, you actually get to the point where you do learn something every time. And that's the thing mm. I, I find really valuable is that you think you talk about something for long enough that you always come away with a different um, perspective or something different that you've, you've learned out of the process. And mm. not everyone has the luxury or the interest in, in doing that. And so we do, you know, try to do things like meet the candidates and that kind of stuff, which is a little bit more widely accessible, but it all has the same principle of, you know, listening, informing ourselves and being engaged citizens. And obviously, before the pandemic, you were able to do this in a room and have lots of people sitting at close quarters and yep. listening to each other. How did it grow in the first couple of years before the pandemic? 
Yeah, so we didn't ever have the kind of 25 people with three portfolios as the model going forward. It was quite an intensive exercise, a lot of fun. You know, people dressed up. They all had, we had name tags, you know, minister for X. And it was, you know, it was a lot of fun. I still got all those name tags in a box somewhere. But we then, it then evolved into, we would select a topic and either we'd have someone from the group who was interested in it or we started then inviting, you know, knowledgeable uh, people from outside the group to come and lead a discussion and then just spend, you know, it usually started around 70 be exhausted by about 9.30, so a couple of hours talking about that topic. So we'd cover education, we covered climate change, identity politics, healthcare, a whole range of different things. We had uh, a friend who works in energy policy talking about you know, nuclear. Is nuclear an option to solve climate change at one stage? You know, some things that sort of asking down, challenging questions and that's one that you can have a, a fairly visceral reaction to whatever perspective you're coming from, but it's a different thing to actually stop and think about it as, you know, what what is the pluses and minuses here? How do we work through it? And how do you weigh up the risks in that example of nuclear energy versus the you know, impending climate uh, crisis? So it's not mm-hmm. as, as easy a thing. The potential apocalypse is worse. That's, that's <laughs> right. You know, and, and you can actually, you know, on nuclear energy, I mean, you can measure some of these things like the level of risk. And we've got, you know, so you can actually do, not that we have all the data in front of us, but at least it's turning our minds to that kind of thing. We had a really interesting discussion on refugees once where, and this is going to sound controversial, but I remember the thing that I came away with was like, actually stopping the boats is not a bad idea. And I was like, I hadn't realized that before. Not because we don't want people to come here, because it's actually a really crap way to get here. Like, it's dangerous for everybody, and they're getting ripped off, and it's horrible. Like, we need a different solution to giving um, refuge to people who need it than you know, having them come across. So it was just interesting to have those sorts of things, you know, put to us in, in a way that you can easily say, I don't believe in that without having thought about it in a detailed way. You know, can you have a more humane way of, you know, settling refugees and that kind of thing? So they're the sort of things that come out of the conversations that we find really valuable. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I feel like often a lot of people in Australia, because it's compulsory to vote here, we all just show up for a democracy sausage once every three years and a lot of people don't think about what democracy is or what our democracy specifically is Mm. and a lot of people passively consume their news sources. They don't necessarily think about who they're consuming the news from or how that impacts how they understand particular issues. Yeah. And so I'm really curious, do you feel like most of the people who participated, were people sometimes surprised at, at what they got from it and do you feel like there was a collective kind of consciousness raising almost isn't it it's a consciousness raising group yeah. in a way <laughs> look i think i think at times that there certainly was i mean my that that's like i said my personal experience so it was you know that i would mm. learn something each time i think so i mean it really is up to the individual like whether they you know are doing the work to keep their mind sufficiently open but you know not so wide open that your brain falls out there are definitely times where i feel like we've had really interesting collective discussions that have got us to a point that feels really unique and different, like uh, a conversation we had about local democracy and local government and the importance of that, the challenge of getting good candidates in. And, you know, we ended up at the end of it, it didn't quite happen in the end, and maybe it will one day, but it was talking about models like, you know, the lottery model for for election. Could we just get 100 people to run and and 100 people picked at random, which it's a model that's existed since the Greeks, actually, the lottery model. And, you know, 
some people call it the Ricky Muir model in Australia, where you know motoring enthusiast party guy got elected on no, you know, hardly a handful of votes plus a really well done preferences, but became quite an interesting character because he didn't know anything about what he was going in there for, had no fixed views, and spent his time learning and listening and talking to people. Which if you just picked a hundred people at random, maybe that's what would happen. So we came away with this, you know, really different way of thinking about what, what, how you would get people into into local government and we had we did a, a fair bit of work at the beginning of sort of 2020 to try to encourage candidates for local government election the the pandemic got in the way of a lot of the effort there in the end it was it was pretty challenging but we did quite a bit to sort of engage with those candidates that did run and put up um, a survey and a, and a blog on their on their views that kind of thing that's really interesting isn't it like local government or local council is such a different thing to state or federal politics in terms of who the the people you're going to get involved and what their sense of responsibility is to their community. Most career politicians are really, they've spent their entire life priming for that moment and they get slammed by the rest of the political kind of arena if they don't have a really watertight position. I mean, there's a couple of things in in what you're saying. I mean, just the difficulty putting yourself up for public office and the environment that you then end up in and how that's not particularly attractive. I mean, that's a a fundamental flaw in a democracy. If the system doesn't make it attractive for for citizens to stand or for only certain types of citizens to stand, then that, that's a, a pretty fundamental flaw. And I think we do have some challenges in that regard. I mean, probably the most widely spoken for good reason is the gender inequality in, in Canberra and the environment that people talk about that, you know, is not, not welcoming of women, not welcoming of families, but that goes well beyond women, I'd, I'd also say. You know, I, I wouldn't stand because I still want to spend time with my family. I still want to like have a life. And I don't want to be kind of harangued every day for, you know, for putting a view out there or for not doing a good enough job or being uncertain about something. If you're part of a party machine that supports you and you've you've come up through the party ranks and you've got a big enough ego that you can withstand whatever else. you know that's the kind of things that are incentivized unfortunately i i still think i want to caveat a little bit because i think that through my professional life which i'm not talking about so much directly now but i have worked with you know ministers and ministerial officers and most of them i i guarantee you are there for the right reasons and are trying to do good things i've only worked as a as a you know, apolitical bureaucrat, and I can see that they have political drivers that you know affect their decisions, and that's the nature of, of the work. But I definitely think that they put a lot of it, a lot of work in, and they probably don't get paid enough, to be honest, despite what you might hear. So I don't think well, that, that is interesting because when you were talking about the incentives for people to participate in our political process, I was thinking, well, the two real motivations are surely money, but compared to what people can earn in a corporate environment. What they get as a politician isn't actually that great, but power is the other factor. Yeah, they're not—they're not the most—they're not motivations that are going to attract necessarily ethical people. I'm not sure it's completely as clear-cut as it sounds. I think it—you know—it's easy to be cynical, and I—and I think you've got to have a pretty healthy ego. But you can have a pretty healthy, you know, ego or you know, commitment to the thing that you believe in, and that's what gets you through the days and days of online or offline abuse. I mean. I do think that, you know, if all you cared about was, you know, power, um, power of money, there are much less painful ways of going about it. And so I think that it's not necessarily a, a clear line between 
you know, ego and power and wanting to, you know, create the world in a vision that you see. And you might interpret that for someone you don't believe in, you know, whose views you don't agree with, I should say, as being them just trying to get their way. But if it's someone you you believe their views and you'll see it as them, you know, having a vision for the future and driving towards it. So a lot of it comes down to the perspective you're you're coming from. Yeah, absolutely true. Good point. Can I come back to something that you were, we were sort of talking about before, which particularly came to my mind in the context of local government. You, you were saying that most people, I'm sure there are probably figures out there we could quote, but are not that engaged. You know, most people don't come to our democracy for dinner conversations. And, you know, we had a conversation one night and we were meeting at Bistro Lola down the road and I made everyone put their hand up and say, how many of you have eaten at the Cumbie, the, the Cumberland Hotel in Castlemaine recently? How many of you even been in there recently? Like, there are plenty of people, like, who still vote who just are not interested in the things we're interested in. I think that's always a challenge mm-hmm. for us to keep in and mind. And they don't even move in the same circles. That's right. And we're in our bubbles. And I, yeah. and I think, you know, there are... I don't blame people for having other things in their life that they're interested in and and driven by. And when I had my first kid and my life was completely absorbed in that, there are things that are just right in front of you that you just have to deal with. And they're just personal choices. And I think the challenge that comes from that for democracy is the one that we started talking about, which is around being sufficiently informed and being sufficiently engaged. And what people end up doing if they're not engaged and this is most people, actually, not just those people who engage and disengage, but particularly if you're not informing yourself, is that they vote, you know, based on the team and it's the it's the spectator sport and and identity. And there's a really a really good thinker from this from the US. He's a podcaster too. <laughs> Look him up. He's written about his name Ezra Klein. who's written about polarization, and you know, his view is that identity trumps self interest every time for a voter. We we might think that voters voting for their hip pocket, you know, voting. For for tax cuts or whatever, but what most people are doing are voting for the team that best matches their identity. And that's essentially the main driver. Like, it's the same thing we hear in our echo chambers. I said a moment ago, maybe stopping the boats is not a bad idea because it will protect refugees from, from harm. But, you know, if you were to say that kind of thing in a certain echo chamber, it sounds like you're not part of the team. You're from the other side. And that's what people are doing. They're kind of repeating things in a way that prove to their people that are around them that they're part of the team. And that doesn't really work for democracy. It, it you know, it ends up in the world like we've got in the US where there just isn't any overlap between the sides. That is, you know, the death spiral of democracy and I'm not overstating it. I mean, there are researchers mm. making those sort of predictions now. Well, it's really interesting. I would love to unpack a bit. I mean, I've recently been re-watching The West Wing. Right. I've never seen um, it, actually. People keep telling me. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> yes. It's really good. I know. It's, uh, it's one of my favourites. It's beautifully failings. written yeah. and fast-paced and yeah. the language is brilliant and the characters are brilliant. Anyway, we've recently been re- re-watching that and it's very idealistic as well and very sort of left humanist, all of that stuff. But in Australia, and again, if people are just sort of passively consuming both their social media and their television stuff there's there's a lot in Australia of us kind of not really knowing the difference between us and the US and and I've seen it in the language and rhetoric of the alt-right as well as that emerges and grows in Australia they're using American law language they're using phrases that are used in America but they don't actually apply in Australia it's not true here 
And I kind of worry that people just borrow their politics and don't think about it that much about how fundamentally different Australian politics is. Right. And our, our democracy is really significantly different in some key ways. Yeah. And one of those, as I mentioned before, is compulsory voting. Another one is preferences. Are you able to explain a little bit some of the differences? There's so many different types of democracy across the world. So many different countries have got democracy, but a completely different brand. Yeah. <laughs> But let's let's unpack a little bit the difference between Australia and America for a minute. Yeah. I mean, one of the ones that probably isn't spoken about enough is the existence of the Australian Electoral Commission, which, you know, is not particularly sexy, but is absolutely fundamental to having a, a fair system to start with. And that is foundational to the differences between us and the US. The US have their electoral authorities delegated to the state legislatures and the state legislatures flip from, you know, Democrat to Republican over time. And it's been particularly the case for the Republicans, but it's also been the case when Democrats have been in control that they have been found to have been gerrymandering the electorates. And, you know, effectively, you know, in the US now, both as a combination of the Senate system, but also the gerrymandering of the House of Representatives, the Republicans only need to get around 42% of the vote to be in a majority. So what does that mean, the gerrymandering? Uh, so the it's, um, it's a term that means you are amending the boundaries of the electorate to suit the party, to increase your chances of election. So you might move candidate. the line of your electorate to include or exclude a particular town. Yeah, exactly. Yep. So, yeah. so what happens in Australia, so Bendigo electorate that we're in at the moment, moment is that the Australian Electoral Commission every year redraws the boundaries. Sometimes they scrap an electorate, sometimes they create a new electorate based on population and based on on numbers. So roughly we have roughly the same number of people in each electorate and, you know, because people move. So some of them in Western Australia would be vast in terms of geography. Yep. But it's this, roughly the same number of people are being represented within that area. Yeah, that's right. So, so between the last federal election, and this federal election, the Bendigo electorate has moved to include Woodend, which has been taken out of the McEwen electorate. They look then at the, at the polling booths of Woodend from last time, and the predictions are done for next time. It'll be slightly, I think, it's slightly more Labor now than it was before that that boundary change. But that's all done by an independent commission of people whose job it is, you know, with criteria to sit down and. and assess the numbers and and they don't look at will this benefit one party or another whereas in the US they do look at how can I change this boundary so that it gives my party the chances for success and it's become almost understood and all of the electoral law in, in the US is delegated to the state, so it differs from state to state. So some states have stronger laws around what the, the state legislatures can do, but it's almost become understood that once you have a Republican legislature or once you have a Democrat legislature, then the next federal election or their presidential elections or House of Reps or, or Senate elections will be affected and prioritising that party that was in control. You look at the state houses, one election, then you look at the, the House of Reps in the next election, and that that's partly why, you know, this year in the US, for example, there's a, it's strongly predicted that there will be a Republican majority in the House of Reps because there was a number of state legislators that went to the, the Republican at the last, the last election period. And the other side of that, which hopefully we don't have yet in Australia, but is also less an institution, but more kind of a, a cultural norm, is that that is becoming the understood practice 
everything is politicized and everything is is and it's just what happens if you want to have a different group of people deciding the electoral laws then vote them in at the state level rather than what we have is an acceptance that you can have an independent body that will independently and apolitically make those determinations that there there's still obviously an apolitical public service in the US but but the arguments around having an independent body in the US are that they can't see how you could have an independent body. They can see how you could have three Democrats and three Republicans and maybe there's you, you, you alternate the chair of them, but it's still politicised. Like it's gone away from the, the sense of, you know, n- nobody is genuinely independent. You've all got a side. And, and that's, yeah, and I think we have to kind of maintain that culture of, of expert neutrality really and that's fundamental. And do, do you feel like that is... A possibility that one of the um, parties might stack the electoral commission with their own people somehow. <laughs> you know, uh, if you want to get into the conspiracy theories, our electoral Ooh. commission is ripe for the picking. <laughs> yeah, it's a really good question. I don't actually know off the top of my head how the electoral commission. I presume they're public servants, so I don't. They're not political appointees, which makes it a little bit easier. You know, even when. This is not quite answering your question, but I'll come back to it. Even in Australia, mm-hmm. where we have seemingly political appointments or nominations, for example, um, high court judges that you know nominated by the Attorney General, those are still done in fairly apolitical ways, or slightly less political than the US, I should say. I mean, you get slightly more conservative judges from the the coalition than you do from from Labor. They pick judges that suit, but you're not picking a coalition judge to sit on the high court in Australia, whereas in the US, you genuinely are. And the, the Supreme Court's also become massively politicised, which is a major problem. You know, We're seeing that with the with the current Roe versus Wade. Absolutely. Been following I mean, that. It's, yeah. Mm. I mean, you, can, you can't avoid it. It's and it was yes everywhere it was i mean that's completely unsurprising as shocking as it is mm. you know trump managed to nominate two or three i forget now i haven't got in front of me but two or three mm. judges a lot of presidents don't get to nominate any so he was you know incredibly mm. lucky and that was the long game that it's literally called the long game in mitch mcconnell's autobiography by the way the long game that they were playing like changing the structure to be conservative for a long time as opposed to focusing on the short-term electoral cycles. Because those people are in those high court positions for for the rest of their life. Yeah, Yeah. in the US, in the Supreme Court in the US, their their lifetime um, Mm. tenure. So in in Australia, Mm. on the Electoral Commission question, um, I still have pretty solid faith in the quality of the Australian bureaucracy. I think we've got good people in critical positions across both federal and you know, state and local government and, and it means that we can have an independent AEC and we've got laws that go around it and things that they can and can't do and, and all the rest of it, which gives a degree more confidence in it as well. I mean, to your question about could it be stacked, I think there are plenty, there are guardrails that would make that particularly difficult. I mean, you could have a government that decides to change the laws that govern the AEC and this is where it comes down to culture and perception more widely, you would want to have enough robust appreciation for the AEC and other institutions across the populace that people would find that abhorrent if a government did try to change it. But at the same time, governments do stack the ABC board, for example, with political appointees, which is changing the nature of that uh, entity as well. So look, we've got a lot of things in, in place. We've learned from the US that you can't take these things for granted. And we talked about the disengagement point 
previously, which is not just disengagement from politics and, and elections, but I'm concerned about disengagement or lack of awareness of things like an independent, robust bureaucracy and the things like the Australian Electoral Commission. You've got to know that it's worthwhile to be worried about it going. And I worry that our knowledge of things like the value of the AEC is not where it should be. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Again, that thing that we all just trundle along on election day and feel like everything's fair. There's a lot of people contesting the results in America and in other democratic places. There's accusations of corruption and dishonesty and mm. the voting not being fair. And But we don't really have that as a worry here in Australia, do we? That the actual system of voting is... Yeah. Open to corruption. I mean, I think in the US there's been as long a history of, you know, complaints about the result as you might think. I mean, there's been a history of Well, the Trump administration, obviously. Yeah, they used it as a, as a political <laughs> tool. They undermined the, yeah, you know, yeah. trust so that they could, if they lost, they could, you know, it was pretty blatant. You know, he said he was going to do that before the election. He did it. And, you know, who could be surprised? I mean... Yeah, I wouldn't mind coming back to the language point because I think we can overuse the language of corruption and things. On Trump, I think, back to my earlier point, I think that the people, you know, to use an arbitrary scale, you know, from what I've observed as a bureaucrat in other roles, I'd imagine that 80% of what is done, 85% is, is done in best interest by expert people doing a good job. But I think if you were to ask, particularly in the US and probably also in Australia, what people thought about the bureaucracy or about government, I'd imagine that they'd probably say it's about 20%. The rest of it's corrupt. The rest of it's self-interested, all the rest of it. And the problem with that is that someone like Trump can come in and he can reduce it from 85% right down to 20% and people don't think anything's changed. I mean, their, their expectations are already so low that he can genuinely be corrupt and genuinely, you know, and people rig go, the well, system. What do you expect? Yeah, that's right. It's always been yeah. like this. What are you talking about? And it's like, that's the problem. And so, you know, on the language point, we throw around words like corruption all the time. And I just think we have to be really careful with that language. I mean, uh, corruption is a hot topic at the moment in Australia. It has been for a while in terms of people calling for a federal level yep. anti-corruption process, which we don't have. Yeah, that's currently. right. And so, so, let's. I mean, talking about what that is about, I'm not denying that there aren't pockets of bad behaviour in certain places. And, you know, we've seen that in you know, various places around Australia, but not of a scale that we saw in, you know, it's not even the same category as what Trump was up to. The sorts of things that an anti-corruption commission in Australia would do are the so-called sports rorts affair or the, you know, the allocation of grants for political means. So elected officials... Whilst they're accountable ultimately to the to the public at elections and therefore, you know, make decisions on those basis, they are still bound to be doing things in the public interest and if doing things in a way that is of, you know, a good use of taxpayers' money. So if a politician is allocating public money to get their party back into power, that's not an efficient use of public money and it's not in the public interest. So that's the kind of thing where it's not a crime and therefore the police can't charge them. But you could have an anti-corruption commission looking at the way that decisions are made and saying, actually, this was done for a political reason, not for a public good reason, and they need to be held to account. At the moment, there is a genuine gap between those things that are a federal crime and the AFP can already prosecute and things that are just, you know, bad behaviour. Or even if there is legislation saying you need to do this in the public interest, there isn't any way to enforce that. And so in my view, and I don't have, I'm not a corruption expert, but it's that kind of thing that 
we need an anti-corruption commission for it. It also it also is for you know the brown paper bag or the influence of political lobbying and those sorts of things. And I and I don't deny that goes on. I think the difference is that the genuine both corrupt behaviour but also the destroying of norms that Trump went through is quite different from the sorts of things that we're necessarily talking about here. And and again, it's not a clear cut. It's not as simple as, you know, the influence of money in politics and the lack of transparency of political donations. Those sort of things are, are genuine problems in Australia as well. And it's not a clear line between some things are good and some things are bad. But I think we also need to be careful about sort of throwing around you know, so-and-so is corrupt or so-and-so is on the take. I had this debate with my 18-year-old recently where he told me that ScoMo is on the take. And I'm like, you can't say that. Like, I mean, you can say that, but it's not helpful. Like, what are you specifically talking about? Like, what particular situation are you talking about? Because I think that what it does is it undermines the genuine trust. And if there are things that are wrong, then we need to name them and call them out. But if it's generalized, then it gets to that situation before where people's trust in institutions erode so much Mm -hmm. that we actually don't fight for them anymore. If people just started saying the AEC was is corrupt, and I've seen tweets recently from members standing for parliament who are saying the AEC is, is corrupt, and the AEC, you know, mm. basically tweeting back at them, good on them. But the problem with that is it undermines <laughs> the trust. And so if, if a government was to come in and say, hey, we're reforming it, we're going to get rid of it, then people mm-hmm. aren't going to fight for it. So that's why it's, it's yeah. so important to be careful with what we're, what we're saying. Yeah, I think from an environment point of view, there's been so many stories about they allocate X million dollars to a brand new organisation that's made up of all their friends who are going to save the Great Barrier Reef, but actually they're all linked to the coal and fossil fuels industries. Those sort of stories have been around and even the pandemic recovery being pointed toward opening up new gas and fracking and all of that sort of stuff. That feels not like it's in the best interests of anyone. And there's that documentary that was made that I haven't watched that linked a lot of the liberal conservative kind of high politics people with having been in corporate roles in Mm. the fossil fuels industries and mining and things like that. Yeah, look, I'm I'm sure it happens. And I mean, I could point to plenty of documentaries that would probably say the same thing about Labor or the Greens or whatever from another side. So I think we do have to be a little bit careful about claiming um, facts from particular sources. So I agree with you that the case of the 250 million dollars that went to a very small company on the Great Barrier Reef does sound a bit unusual. It does sound like something that should be looked at. I think my point is that that should be looked at by something like an anti-corruption commission who has the tools to actually explore it and understand it, how decisions were made, how it got to that point. But this is what we don't have, isn't it? Correct. We don't yeah. have the anti-corruption so I commission. I think that's a really yeah. good idea. I think having that for these yeah, purposes yeah. is a really good idea. <laughs> not, and so I, I think the yeah. the... In absence of it, we have these things litigated, you know, around... These vacuums of information and lots of speculation. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. And look, I've seen things that look from the outside like they're really bad, but actually not. And if you understand the decision-making process, I just think it's there and there are problems. We need to have the institutions to properly understand them and to stamp them out because I think that... If it's you know litigated across social media or you know around the democracy for dinner table, for argument's sake, whatever it is, usually with a bunch of people who agree with you, and it's not necessarily going to get you the answer. So I think that that's these are the things that I think I guess are foundational to democracy working. Now look, we've only got eight more minutes before you have to disappear. I just was wondering if there was anything you wanted to say, particularly 
coming back to Democracy for Dinner and there's a couple of other local initiatives about people sort of self-educating and becoming more consciously engaged with the political process. Is there anything else you would say around that or how can Australians who might be feeling increasingly cynical or suspicious actually investigate this stuff? How can they actually learn Mm. what the truth of these things is? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I think back to the original premise of the Dinner for Democracy, which became Democracy for Dinner, mainly through a typo, by the way, which he thought was funny and therefore decided to keep. Um, <laughs> the, you know, it was about the burden of being an informed citizen. That was Jody's tagline when she said, hey, how would this do this thing? Like, it's the burden of, of democracy. It actually takes a bit of work. And that's a hard thing to ask people to do when they've got busy lives and doing all the rest of it. So some of it takes work. But I also think that it's about what I was saying before about just being willing to kind of stop and listen and and learn a little bit before you jump to conclusions about something. I think that we've all kind of seen the campaign on Facebook that we think is a really bad thing and, you know, clicked whatever. It's just we need to know more about the things that we are engaging with and maybe just imagining the best possible explanation that someone has a different view for you and then engaging with that as opposed to continuing to engage with you know, one's mindset about what, what the other side might be thinking. So in terms of like how we act or how we behave in a more prosaic sense, we do need more people putting up their hand. We need more people kind of actively engaging. We often have local government wards in Mount Alexander that are elected unopposed, which is, you know, not great for democracy. I mean, we need people learning a bit and voting where they can or or participating outside of that. I mean, we haven't even touched on the strength of volunteering and committing to a cause and getting behind things that really matter to you and, and contributing that way. So voting with your time and energy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Things like climate. I mean, we've waited so long for genuine political leadership on those sorts of things. But also heard Bob Brown speak recently. He said he didn't think he'd be championing the cause of the corporate sector as much as he is now because they're actually leading on a lot of the climate stuff because the governments have been left behind. So just to think about driving things that that we get behind, there's there's a lot more to creating change and influence than just your vote as important as, as the vote is. That's exactly why I started this podcast and radio show is because of a deep frustration with our federal government. And I think the Liberals had just gotten in power and it was a very depressing time. And it was like, well, we're just going to have to do it ourselves. And I know that there's so many people who are active in the environment movement who are doing it because that's all we can do and we just have to do it ourselves. Yeah. But yeah, and it is these people who are putting pressure on corporations and the corporations are starting to see the writing on the wall about what it means for their business. If they're projecting their business models into 5, 10, 15, 20-year plans, they have to account for climate change. And I think when they really look at what that means, it's scaring the bejesus out of them. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, Adani didn't not go ahead or hasn't been built because you know lack of approvals it was because the pressure was put on the financing of the banks and that that actually have influenced that and i think the question about climate and democracy is an interesting one i went to china just before the pandemic actually went through wuhan different story but wow. like in in october just before, before it all no one heard of wuhan at that point and china is was it was fascinating to me to see what china was doing in, in you know, electric buses and electric vehicles and all the rest of it because they don't have to 
worry about a polarized political environment. Two party, <laughs> like, oppositional. It's you know yeah. there is an argument to say you could get action on climate change much more quickly if you had autocracy, not democracy. But the obvious problem with that is that you get action that doesn't benefit everybody. It's that kind of climate justice side of things. We need both. We need democracy, which provides the accountability to the people. Otherwise, you could have action, but action in in a way that isn't isn't accountable to the people and doesn't drive that justice. So I think that that's where those two things in my mind come together. Yeah. And I think it's the luck of the draw when you have autocracy or a dictatorship, which way it'll fall, yeah. whether it will actually be for the people or for the climate or, yeah, it's very, it's tricky. I mean, if you if you have a dictatorship in the Middle East, they're going to be yeah, that's right. extracting all the oil it's and not, it's not my preferred making people drive model. cars. And... That's right. <laughs> yeah, know. that's right. That's why I don't think, you know, it's easy to, it's, you know, it's easy to see that that could be the case, but I don't think it's necess- it's the best model going forward. Yeah, definitely. Can I offer one last thing before yeah. I go? So I mentioned my hero, Ezra, Ezra Klein. At the end of his podcast, he always asks people to recommend three books. So I was going to recommend three books, and they're all kind of American-based. I'll move on to Australian Democracy next. But one is Ezra's book, Why We're Polarised. We haven't talked about media and media feeds on the disengaged, and people start to just believe the narrative that they see, and it just creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. So he's got a book all about political polarisation called Why We're Polarised. There's another one by a couple of academics called Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt, which is called How Democracies Die. And it's a really good read. It's quite frightening, really easy to read. It's quite frightening. And written during Trump's term in office, and they, they essentially go through... So they've been researching dictatorships and autocracies for decades, and they go through their you know, well-established framework of here are the indicators, and Trump essentially ticks off eight out of ten or something like that of those of those indicators. And there's only been one other president who's ever had any indicator, and he had one, and that was and that was Nixon. So Trump was like way and this is the example of you know Hillary versus Trump like they're not even the same ballpark and then the third one which goes back to a passion for trusted institutions and bureaucracy and the rest of it and another American book oh actually there's an Australian equivalent too but I'll talk about which is called The Fifth Risk by Michael Lewis so Michael Lewis is a pretty famous kind of non-fiction author and podcaster and his book Big Shot became a movie and he said Moneyball and a few others that are pretty famous but he wrote The Fifth Risk which he described his love letter to the bureaucracy so he went in to a number of agencies during the Trump years and just interviewed people who were keeping the lights on, keeping you know the world running in, in spite of the chaos yeah. above them. People who are stopping toxic waste dumps from going into rivers and people who are you know, running the weather service and people are doing all this sort of, sort of stuff. And there is a real risk that we don't appreciate how much of what we see as our good life is dependent on a solid public service. It's not, it's not the... People most... doing the nine to five. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Behind a computer. Yeah. Doing, doing yeah. all that. And there's, it's yeah. not quite the same, but um, James Button's book, Speechless, which is about his time working for Kevin Rudd, is also really interesting because he's an outsider. He comes from a political family, but never worked in the public service and goes and works, you know, Rudd basically chews him up and spits him out. But then he goes to work in the public service itself. And he's like, there's, there's so many more people trying to do a really good job here than I thought. I thought it was just a whole lot of people getting paid lots of money to sit around and do nothing. And just the kind of insights into... If we don't appreciate that, then we won't fight for it if it gets if it gets taken away from us. Yeah, so great. Thank you for the recommendations. I love that. Any other final points? Don't. I think it that's would good. be 
there would be, I mean, that whole conversation about sure. Hillary versus Trump would be <laughs> excellent to delve into, but I, well, it's been analysed there, to death, there is so. a really good David Sedaris take on this, if which is that, you know David Sedaris, the humor writer. He's a he's a you know very funny writer in the U.S. Anyway, he he talks about like you know if you're on an aeroplane. And they come up to you and say, you can neither choose the chicken or the piece of shit with ground up glass in it. You don't ask how well the chicken's cooked. Like, that's that's the choice you're making, basically. It's like, you you don't criticize the chicken when the other alternative is as bad as it is. So... But it's, I mean, coming back to that polarization point, I feel like the American public was so polarized and so cynical at that point that they felt like a protest vote was a better thing to do than to vote for the piece of chicken. That's right. Yeah, I mean, and well, yeah. That's dangerous. That's a symptom, really. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think that a lot of people didn't think the Trump was going to get in, and so they probably didn't, weren't that, you know, the Democrat side wasn't that wound up by it, and a lot of them weren't that excited by Clinton, and that affected it. Yeah, there's also, we didn't talk about, and there's a whole list of things that are different between us and, and the US, and we only really touched on one of them, but you mentioned preferential voting. You know, that wouldn't have happened and Bush versus Gore wouldn't have happened in a system which had preferential voting because you would have had, you know, in the case of Bush versus Gore, you would have had Ralph Nader's votes largely going to Gore and, and pushing him over the line and Jill Stein in the Clinton versus Trump. Imagine that could have affected a handful of states. So the Senate's different again in that it's proportional representation as opposed to preferential voting. And that means that you actually genuinely do get minor parties elected for for good reason. The Senate as proportionate to the vote. So if, you know, I forget what the actual quota is for the Senate now, but this is how you, you get people who are representative of 10 to 15% of the, of the population can get a seat because that's large enough to, to warrant a seat. Tasmania and New Zealand have this for their lower houses. So in Tasmania, there is proportional representation across their lower houses as well for the state parliament. And it means this is why, you know, Tasmania was the first state that had a Labor Green Accord way back in the, in the early 90s. So, and New Zealand has proportional representation across all of them. They also have a Maori seat um, in Parliament. So there's a whole range of ways of doing things which mean that you can reflect the overall population better than you do in a, in a two-party system. So preferential is better than not preferential, but there are other ways that would actually fully represent the community um, and then will create the sort of thing that the Prime Minister is currently complaining about, literally on radio today, uh, about having a diverse Parliament, which you know is not an easy thing and you can see challenges in places like Israel and other other places where they have significant challenges even forming government. But in a lot of Europe, coalition governments, but not like we have in Australia between Liberal and, and the National Party, but coalitions between parties to reach a majority is the norm. In Germany, you know, the Green Party has just joined with the Social Democrats Party and a so slightly more right-wing party, yeah. which means that some things... So it lends itself you know, to cooperation correct, rather than yeah. division. Which is easier said yeah. than done. It's interesting, I mentioned um, Ezra before, he has a different view from the US where the problem in the US is that they don't have enough of a majoritarian systems. The party that gets the majority can't always get its agenda through. And so they have the filibuster and they have a range of, I think it's there's some research I saw which had 14 checks and balances on any decision that are made, like presidential veto and a whole range of other things. We, we have a handful of them, three or four, which is healthy to have checks and balances. In, in the US, you have yeah. kind of 14 ways something can be stopped and the problem with that is that yeah you like you can vote you know a blue wave or you can vote a red wave 
and they actually don't get their agenda in. So you can't actually see what having a you know a majoritarian party delivering its agenda looks like. And so people get cynical and think nothing nothing's happened, and then they do a protest vote. So he has a view that you can have too much of that kind of deliberation and and compromise, which is interesting because I think we see it from the other side. It feels like you know we don't have enough of that, and you know there have been minority governments that have worked pretty well. I think Labor Party in Tasmania would probably not like to go back to Labor Green Accord, but actually was some really fantastic things that came out of that period and the and the Gillard government with Tony Windsor, another example of where that collaboration and can actually work really well. So that's it for my conversation with Bryn Davies. It felt like we'd only just got started, really, but (laughs) there is so much to talk about, (laughs) about politics and the world. If you live in Castlemaine, I highly recommend that you check out Democracy for Dinner and the event they're putting on on Wednesday night, which is a Meet the Candidates event on the 11th of May. It's at the Tap Room, and if there is a recording available after the event, I'll link it in the podcast notes. So go to saltgrasspodcast.com for that link and also links to all of the other things that Bryn spoke with us about today. You can follow Saltgrass on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Please subscribe to our email list to get reminders and updates about the show. And again, you can do that by going to saltgrasspodcast.com. This program is made possible with support from Main FM and the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Find out more at cbf.org.au. My name is Alison Hanley. Thanks for listening. Salt of the Earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Listen to all episodes of Saltgrass on your podcast app or at saltgrasspodcast.com.